Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. We've begun a new study just last week, so you haven't missed, well, a whole lot. We'll set the stage. We come in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, uh, here on page 225 in the Black Pew Bible. We come to the song and prayer of Hannah. We may think of Hannah as the mother of Samuel. She was the godly mother of a godly son. We ought also to think of Hannah as the praying daughter of the Heavenly Father. Last week, we met this little family of Elkanah and Hannah and another woman. There was a second wife in the home, Penina, and Hannah was both uh, barren and distressed. And part of her distress was that Penina was a merciless woman. She had lots of kids. That's not a problem. But she rubbed uh, the nose of Hannah in it. Elkanah said to Hannah, this is part of her distress, why are you not eating? Why are you not sleeping? And am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And then as Hannah poured out her heart and soul to the Lord, she went to the temple to pray. And Eli the priest misunderstood her earnestness in prayer for drunkenness. But there she is praying to the Lord, pouring out her soul, saying, Give me a son, Lord, and I will give him back to you. And God heard that prayer, and Samuel is conceived and born. Now, as uh, we are... Uh, Here with them at the temple, it's uh, perhaps three or four years later. She has weaned her son. She has brought him to Shiloh to leave him there in the care of Eli, the the high priest, because he's to be trained as a Levitical priest. And because she took a Nazarite vow that he would serve the Lord all his days and because she said she would lend him back to the Lord. So there she is and she prays again. In chapter 2 here in verses 1 through 11 tells us her prayer. Notice simply as you're looking at the passage, if it's before you, the structure. Verse 1, we see a praying mother. Then drop down to verse 11 at the very end. We see a departing father. They go home. But a God-serving boy, he remains behind. But the whole focus of verses 1 to 11, the focus of her prayer is our dependable God who governs the world. And I want you to think about Hannah's trust in him and your own. Let's uh, read together and hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Amen. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, uh, be our teacher and give us ears to hear. Grant us soft hearts to listen to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Horatio G. Spafford suffered two grievous losses in a row. He uh, lost most everything in the Chicago fire of 1871. It ruined him financially. But shortly thereafter, while crossing the Atlantic, his wife and daughters, the four Spafford daughters, died when the ship collided with another. Spafford's wife, Anna, arriving safely in England, telegrammed back, saved alone. Several weeks later, as Spafford's own ship passed near to the spot where his daughters died, he wrote the words we sang earlier, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could he write such a song and sing it in the face of such a disaster, such a reversal? Well, I think because he knew the God that Hannah knew. The God who rules over all, the God who is in charge of all things, the God of providence Who loves him? Who loves Hannah? What are are God's works of providence? Asks the 11th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What what, what do we mean when we say providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful. Preserving and governing all his creatures. And all their actions. No matter what, God is on his throne working out his purposes. And as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, he is working all things for our good. For those who love him 
and are called according to his purpose. Not that everything is good. There's real evil. There's real horror and disaster and upheaval and pain and sorrow. But he is working for our good in all things. What can we learn then from Hannah who suffered so much? What can we learn from this godly woman's prayer? Well, let's figure that out by asking three questions. Why Hannah prayed? To whom did she pray? For what did she pray? Three questions. The first one, why did Hannah pray? Why Hannah prayed? Verses 1 to 3. She prayed because of God's dealings with her. She had asked Yahweh for a son, and a son is what he gave her. Notice the language of verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh, the personal name of God. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My heart is exalted in Yahweh. It's thanksgiving and praise here, folks. Now, she isn't so much interceding for Samuel, her son, though you can imagine she did that. She's a praying woman. She loves him as a mother. She's probably been reeling in her heart at the thought of leaving him at the temple at such a young age. She certainly knew the dangers of Eli. His two sons were publicly scandalous, as we'll see. But this prayer here isn't exactly for him. It's not intercession on his behalf. What is it? It is prayer in in praise of God. It is exuberant prayer. My heart, she says, bursts in praise. She is not so much thinking of the gift of her son, but the giver of her son. And she speaks of horn. What is that about? That's uh, agricultural language for the horn of the ox, the horn that's lifted up when the head is lifted high. It's the symbol of strength. It's sometimes translated that. The symbol of victory and strength. Her heart is thrilled with Yahweh. Her strength abounds in Yahweh. And she also prays in light of her enemies. Notice the language at the end of verse Uh, One, my mouth, she says, derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, enemies there is plural, so she may be thinking of multiple people, but surely she's at least thinking of Penina, that wicked other wife who beat her down with her barrenness. There may have been others back home who in Ramah did likewise. Now, don't misunderstand this language of enemies. Hannah had not hated Penina. That's very clear in chapter 1. She hadn't gone to war against Penina. But it is very clear in chapter 1 that Penina had hated Hannah. She took the most solemn and joyful occasions, the yearly celebration at the temple, when they're actually eating what's called the peace offering, which is after the burnt offering and after the offerings for forgiveness of sin. When you, when you, when you basically share a meal, it's a party, it's a barbecue. The priest gets a portion, God gets a portion, but you and your family sit down and enjoy a portion because you are delighting in what? That God pardons you, God welcomes you, God loves you, God's for you. And in the midst of that moment, Penina is saying, you're barren, God's probably cursed you, God doesn't love you. It's Penina who has made herself an enemy to the godly Hannah. And now Hannah rejoices in Yahweh's rescue of her. Yahweh is shut 
the mouth of this evil woman. And so Hannah exalts in God, and at verse 2, she describes him in his holiness. There is none holy like the Lord. She may be thinking of God's revelation of himself to Moses when in the burning bush, God said, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. She, she knows that God in meeting man, there's no equal there. God is a cut above. He is altogether different. He is in moral terms, pure and perfect. And so she knows that in midst of whatever trouble she has endured, The one thing she's certain of is that God is not callous. God is not mean-spirited. God is not ugly. God is not hateful. Not not those things. God is holy. God is good. God is pure. He is altogether different than Penina. And altogether different than Hannah. And so whatever I'm going through is not because God is bad. God is good, she says. He's holy. She delights in his exclusivity. There's none besides you, she says. She knows she's got no other helper for her soul but God. And she honors him as her rock. There is no rock like our God. She may be picking up on the song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 where Moses says of God, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God in the Bible is our rock, a mountain, a safe refuge from raging rivers, a shelter from fierce storms, a hiding place from those who hunt you. And since verse 3, end of it, the Lord is a God of knowledge, she says. She's describing him again. And by him actions are weighed. Therefore, beginning of verse 3, she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Do you see how she is delighting in the God of providence? The proud may boast. They know his mind. They discern his plans. They figured out the reasons why Hannah is suffering. The proud may think they have it all to them when things look bleak for others. But Hannah knows what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And in his providence to her... Regarding Samuel, though painful through barrenness, and now painful in impending separation, it is nonetheless good, and he has been good to her. And so she exalts in him. What about you? What about you? Do you see the good that God has done for you And are you here today, like Hannah, to to say thank you? That is not a common occurrence. How ungrateful we so frequently are, says the preacher of himself. How slow to attribute the good that we have to our Father's care. Luke tells us the story in chapter 17 of Jesus when he entered a village met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and they lifted their voices, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they turned and went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice and fell at his, on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, Jesus says. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? How unbecoming of us as God's creatures not to give thanks to our creator. And how much more so unbecoming of us who are the children of God by faith. To withhold from him the glory due his name. May God make us more like Hannah in praise. Now the second thing I want you to see is notice the one to whom Hannah prayed, verses 4 through 8. How does she describe God and his ways here? Well, he's the God who reverses the fortunes of the world. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Perhaps she's thinking here of the mighty army of Egypt destroyed while the insignificant and weak slaves went free. The self-reliant warrior is defeated. The weak are strengthened by God. Then she speaks of the full and the hungry, switching places. Notice verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. There's this great reversal. And as Hannah knows by her own experience, look at the end of that. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She may be thinking here of seven as the number of perfection or the number of completion. You know she has but one son at this point, Samuel. Later we'll hear that she'll end up having five more. That only gets you six, not seven. But seven here may be her saying, but I have the fullness that I asked of God. And he gave it. Well, Penina, with so many kids, is clearly an unsatisfied, unhappy person. Let's learn the lessons of these reversals. The proud and self-reliant and self-satisfied may at any moment be brought low by God. The weak and the hungry and the needy who rely on God may be strengthened and fed and satisfied. It's like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now notice verse 6, how starkly she states it. The Lord kills and brings to life. Maybe Hannah is thinking of Moses and Israel and the golden calf Episode when by the idolatry of the people they provoked the vengeance of God and he exacted the death penalty upon them. Of course, she may be thinking much more personally of her own experience a, a dead womb, a womb of death, miraculously now bearing a son in life. She's saying the Lord presides in births and in burials. Our days are numbered. Our lives are in God's hands. It isn't accident or illness that brings us down to the grave. Notice the end of verse 6. He he brings down to Sheol and raises up. What's she talking about there? Sheol in the Bible, the Old Testament, is the realm of the dead. It's not the term for hell, which the Bible does use. 
to describe the place of the dead where sinners suffer judgment by God for their sins. But it's more just the realm of the dead. And here, she says, Yahweh raises up. Hannah believes in resurrection. God raises the dead, she's saying. Is she thinking of Joseph's hope? At the end of his life, he gave instructions about his bones that they should be brought out of Egypt and back with the people of God to the promised land in, in hope of the resurrection. Or maybe she th- she's thinking of Abraham's hope, who was not seeking that little dry, dusty plot of land, but a better country, a heavenly country. He believed in resurrection. Then look at verse 7, another contrast, another reversal. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. It's not always our doing why we become poor. God's sovereign in that. Are you rich? Be careful of pride. What you have is God's gift. Are you poor? Be careful of envy. The wealth of the world is God's to distribute as it pleases him. He causes advancement and abasement he brings low and he exalts verse 8 he raises up the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor surely she's thinking of joseph who went from the prison to the palace maybe she's thinking of moses 40 years in the palace then 40 years shepherding sheep before leading Israel out of Egypt. Why does she rehearse all these reversals of fortune, so to speak? Because she knows that God is in charge of all things. Verse 8, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. She's recognizing God's providence encompasses the good and the bad, the easy and the hard, the pleasant and the painful. This is what I think Anne Steele knew. We sang her song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. If you haven't already read it, I've given you a bunch of information about her life. Her mother died when she was three. By 14, she suffered chronic recurring malaria, took a progressive toll on her health. She had painful stomach problems. She had severe teeth pain. She was thrown from a horse and injured at 19. And when she was 21 and engaged to be married, the day before her wedding, her fiancé drowned while bathing in a river. She spent the last nine years of her 30-year-long life bedridden from ailments. Yet in spite of all of that, her, dis- her disposition was described as cheerful and helpful. How is that possible? She knew her God. The words upon her dying lips were, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And then she passed into his presence. That's how she could sing, To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But you say, Anne had it tough to the end. Where's her reversal of fortune? Don't you know? This world was not her home. And your reversal may yet away your own homegoing too. We don't always get it all right here, right now.
Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, notes that in an essay on prayer by C.S. Lewis, Lewis suggested that God treats Christians with a special kind of tenderness, new Christians, much as a parent dotes on their newborn. Lewis, quoting an experienced Christian who said, I have seen many striking answers to prayer, and more than one I thought miraculous, but they usually came uh, at the beginning before conversion or soon after it. As the Christian life proceeds, they tend to be rarer. The refusals, too, are not only more frequent, they become more unmistakable, more emphatic. See what he's saying? At first glance, um, this seems all backwards. Shouldn't faith become easier, not harder as we progress? Shouldn't the prayers come more answered readily the more we progress? But as Lewis points out in the New Testament, we have two strong examples of unanswered prayer. Jesus pleading three times for God to take this cup from me. And Paul begging God to remove the thorn in my flesh. And Lewis asked this question, does God then forsake just those who serve him best? Well, he who served him best of all said, near his tortured death, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you see that when God becomes man, Lewis goes on, that man of all others is least comforted by God at his greatest need. Let your comfort be that of Hannah. Barren so many years, now leaving a very young son, what sustained her was the knowledge of God on his throne, ruling all things, strengthening the weak, sustaining the weary, even raising the dead. This is the sight of God she has. And the final thing is this. For what did she pray? Verses 9 and 10. Well, it's not easy to see at the end of verse 10, the last two lines, that she's actually requesting something. I'm following Ralph Davis here, who translates them as requests, uh, when, when she doesn't simply assert that the Lord will give strength to his king, but may the Lord give strength to his king. May the Lord uh, strengthen his anointed one. This is, this is amazing. In Hannah's day, Israel has no king. It had never had a king to this point, except for God alone. But she's thinking here of God's appointed king, God's anointed king, king on earth. She calls him the anointed, the Messiah. This is, in fact, the first use in the Bible of the expression Messiah for Israel's king. And it's a king that Israel doesn't even have yet. So what's going on here? Look, many commentators look at this passage and say Hannah didn't really pray this prayer. It's anachronistic. She couldn't pray that uh, the Lord would strengthen a king when Israel didn't even have that king yet, they would say. Somebody else came along and put these words in her mouth later, they say. How can she speak of king as Messiah when nobody else had done that before, they say. But it's not difficult to know how she could do any of these things. Hannah is led along by the Spirit of God. Hannah has been a great student of the Bible. She is a masterful theologian. She knew that that God in Genesis 17 verse 6 had promised to Abraham that kings would come from him. 
She knew that God in Deuteronomy 17 gave regulations for the future king of Israel they didn't even have yet. And perhaps she knew well the times. As Judges ends, there was no king in Israel and each man did what was right in his own eyes. And they needed God's remedy, a good king. And so here's a woman who has searched the scriptures. She has read, marked, and inwardly digested its riches. She has thought it through. She has learned its lessons. She knows her God and she prayed for God's king. Perhaps even beyond that first king to the king of kings. Ancient expositors, both Jewish and Christian, believe she saw beyond David to the son of David. St. Augustine says of Hannah, Through this woman there speaks by the spirit of prophecy the Christian religion itself, with which the humble are filled so that they rise up, which was in fact the chief theme that rang out in her hymn, of praise for she knew what God would do through this Messiah king she prayed for what was God going to do with this king verses 9 and 10 he will guard the feet of his faithful ones God will hold on to them he will guard them he will protect them he will keep them from slipping and tripping in such a way that they fall away forever but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness his adversaries will be broken to pieces silence And nobody will escape his rule through him. The Lord, middle of verse 10, will judge the ends of the earth. Through this king, she's praying for, God will judge not just the people of Israel, but the ends of the earth. She expected that God would do finally, and at the end, everything that God intends to do, and he would do it through this king, this Messiah. How appropriate then that the promise of this king should be on her lips. Who better to foretell, says Rick Phillips, who better to foretell God's gift of his own son to be the savior of mankind than the woman who had freely given her firstborn son to God to minister in his name. Is it any wonder that Mary then, the mother of Jesus, learns from this prayer, imitates her language, When the Lord gives her a son. I mean, look at Luke chapter 1 verse 46. Just listen to it. My soul, says Mary, magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate and has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty do you hear the language of hannah in the prayer of mary They prayed for the same king. You do not want to be cut off from this king. Your only hope is his mercy and he delights to show mercy. For this king has come. And this king has died. The just for the unjust. 
to bring us to God. Hannah knew of him, confessed him, prayed for him. May God give us a heart like hers. And so may we pray, thy kingdom come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we would, as best we know how, boast in you. Glory in your salvation. Glory in your rule. Glory in your plan. Glory in the gift of your son, our king, the king of kings. Thank you that he's come. Help us to trust in him, rest in him, delight in him, enjoy all his benefits, and help us to long for his returning glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.